Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 26, the one about breaking webinar rules, sad lamps, celebrity service, and Mad Max Fury Road. Let's get on with the show. And welcome everyone to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to help keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. As always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much for this introduction. And while it is a pleasure also to spend some time with a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the host of the Roger of Video series, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Thank you so much, Pascal, and it is so good to be back. I think that we should both now be on a mission to dive straight into the news. What do you think? Let's do this. And we begin with 8.5 million new paid subscribers joining Netflix during the fourth quarter of last year. The streaming giant crossed the 200 million mark amid a record year for all online services. Tesco is hoping its record Christmas results and third quarter training can act as a platform for continued growth in 2021, particularly when it comes to online shopping and delivery services. Now, for the first time ever, the brands not going ahead with Super Bowl advertising have been making more buzz and creating more buzz than the marketers spending their $5.5 billion to participate. Goodness gracious. The CMO Strategic Priorities Survey 2021 of Chief Marketing Officers conducted by Gartner has found that 73% intend to pursue low-risk, low-return strategies for 2021, falling back on existing customers to tide them through a lean period. What about this, Roger? Capital One is planning to do more content on Twitch in 2021, hoping to forge deeper, more meaningful engagement with those who dislike adverts and prefer community-centered content. Pascal, the 25th James Bond film, No Time to Die, has been delayed again until the 8th of October 2021. 18 months after its original release date. The Marketing Academy is launching a free online learning platform called the Virtual Campus Program. Its aim is to develop people working in marketing, media and advertising. As Australia gets ready to introduce a mandatory code of conduct for tech platforms, uh, Facebook and Google, the latter has threatened to remove its search engine from Australia. So, Pascal, I'm going to have to go back to James Bond. Sorry. I thought you might. You know how, you know how cross <laughs> I am about this. I'm not actually going to go into the whys and wherefores of whether they should launch it on demand or not. We've done that mm -hmm. a few times on, on the podcast so far. But as a sort of ancillary addition to this piece of news, I read another article yesterday, which really actually made me think. Now it's 18 months late, and because they had quite a lot of marketing um, tie-ins with the film, so product placements, you know, adverts in the background, that sort of thing, it's likely they may have to reshoot some of the film or at least try to use some trickery to replace the products which are effectively going to be out of date by the time the film gets 
gets released. So, for example, apparently there are some models of phones which, had it come out in April 2020, would have been state-of-the-art. But by October 2021, those phones will have been superseded by another model. So it looks like they're going to have to reshoot or do some special effects trickery to effectively update some of the product placements in the film. Ah, this is a content creation nightmare, you know, making the latest gems on movie a historical movie, not a movie you now that's contemporary or looking to the future. I mean, what I will say is that the 8th of October is my birthday. So this ah. could be this could be a good sign. You know, maybe you and I will end up watching James Bond on the big screen. And I'm torn about whether I should be critical of the decision or actually think of it as this idea of when movies, theatres and venues can open again, they will need a stock. They will need to have a portfolio of films to show. And mm. this is what is driving, obviously, the decision here to make sure that by the autumn of, of this year, at least there are some new movies to watch. Because, of course, the production of uh, most movies has slowed down. I mean, they are still going ahead. We know of TV series and movies being produced whilst respecting all the different kind of guidelines. But I'd imagine that uh, compared to previous years, we're going to have the big blockbusters and the big kind of uh, summer and, and Christmas um, kind of big event. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's given the fact that you've just told me it's going to be on your birthday. I'm feel I'm feeling a lot happier about it now. Pascal, I was also thinking about this Tesco thing. Now they've they've had remarkable results, but uh, so much of our shopping now is online, isn't it? Because of the pandemic, you know, it was it was pretty high online before the pandemic, but with all the shops, the 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 unessentials as the government call it shops closed we're buying more and more stuff online now yesterday i went for a walk around edinburgh now that i'm allowed to do that because it's my um, daily exercise and i took myself up onto carlton hill which is overlooking the nearly completed development which we know as the st james's center and this has been four years in the building and previous to that it took them two years to knock down the previous St James Centre and it really brought it home to me yesterday how colossal this shopping centre is going to be. I believe there's over a hundred shopping units which can be used for shops, restaurants, cinemas, gyms, whatever it is and I did just think you know once this finally gets open and we are back to a sort of normal Will people have become so conditioned to buying online that this is almost going to be a gigantic pink elephant in the middle of, of Edinburgh? And okay, the restaurants might thrive and the gymnasium, but are the shops really going to bounce back as quickly? I don't know. It just made me think seeing the scale this edifice yesterday. No, you're right. And I think this is worthy of a survey and in fact, a regular one, because of course, people's opinions and, and thoughts on this will change. But yes, you know, how, how do you feel? Because um, we, we actually mentioned last week, remember the convenience factor of even shopping via social media, let alone the official websites and so on. So I think it's definitely one to watch in terms of um, behavior and attitude to, to shopping. But um, I can't help but think, you know, about your description of this um, kind of destination venue. But did, did I read right in, in the news that uh, one of the um, department stores in Edinburgh is shutting down? So you've got that, that c contrast as well. 
Absolutely right. Jenner's, which has been, it's, I mean, it's, one of, it's like the Harrods of Edinburgh, you know, traditional department store. Now, we did, it's been mooted to be closing down for a long time. And the idea was that the building that currently houses Jenner's will be turned into restaurants and bars. Whether they'll actually relocate Jenner's into this new shopping centre, which I just described, is now up for debate. And from reading the article that you've just mentioned, it seems to me that maybe Jenner's will be disappearing forever, which, again, is a is a colossal loss to the high street, but indicative, of, again, of the modern world we live in, where people are more than happy to buy online. Mm. I want to ask you in a moment about Google and Australia, but before I do so... Is there some kind of very, very strange irony and twist of fate when somebody declines to advertise for Super Bowl and they become the most talked about brand compared to those who spent the billions of dollars? Yeah. I mean, again, the Super Bowl is almost this big barometer for TV advertising, isn't it? You know, the the, the prime slot in between the, the phases of the game. Uh, it, they go for millions and millions and millions of dollars. And, and, and marketers all around the the world will say TV advertising is dying because of what's happening in the, uh, in the Super Bowl. And I, I've always been a bit skeptical about this whole this is dying that's dying it's just changing and but this is this is significant i think this is significant that the focus is on the people that aren't looking to get yeah they were just you know one of those one of those about you know at least they're talking about us even though we're not spending the money talking of uh, brands that are being obviously talked about and featured so we have a bit of a um you know a conflict a bit of a, a spat between the australian government and google in and around this idea of Google featuring news from other platforms and outlets and the fact that they should pay for that, right? Google disagrees. The government in Australia said, well, we think we're right. And Google then said, well, in that case, maybe we should stop providing a service to your citizens. Where do you think this is going to go? It's uh, funnily enough, I was talking to somebody about this the other day in, in, in terms of Amazon and how big Amazon are getting. And, and some of these companies are now, their turnover, their GDP, I guess, is, is bigger than countries, isn't it? They are becoming powerful um, conglomerates in their own own right, bigger than actual countries. And, and it does make you wonder bef- how long it will be before they become so powerful that they can start to effectively interfere with the political mm. structures of, of countries. And, and, and this seems to be maybe a spat that's heading in that direction. I mean, there's, there was already obviously the, um, the tension with uh, the EU. You know, they, they have a similar stance around data and also news. I think this is going to repeat itself. And I wonder whether within the next two, three, five years, we end up with uh, different territories having different relationship with those brands, such as Amazon, Google, Facebook, and so on, where there'll be localized for like arrangements. Uh, I have some sympathy with this idea of Google harvesting news produced by others and getting all the credits because what, what is happening, Roger, is people re- read the headlines and some of the snippets on Google and go no further. So it's not as if they're even providing traffic and eyes on, on the content. They're just benefiting from someone else's work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I also think that, you know, sometimes you see a link on Google to a news article, you click through it. When you get to that news article, it's one of these news websites, which also has a million pop up ads and and things that cover over what you're trying to read. And that gets you annoyed. So 
maybe people are also not very happy with the way that news websites are in, enraging them with their advertising. Mm. So there's it's six of one and half a dozen <laughs> of the other, perhaps. Well, as always, lots of news to talk about. So I think it's time we should move on to our next section, which is our content spotlights. In this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table an item of content that we've seen during the week. It could be an article, it could be a video, it could be a podcast, but it always grabs our attention. And the great thing is that neither of us share it with each other in advance. So, Pascal, surprise me. What have you got for us this week? Well, this week is actually about a webinar that I'd attended uh, last week about Webinars, Roger. Now, <laughs> here we are. By the time this episode is published online, we'll be in the early first week in February. So January is behind us, and we're looking ahead to 2021. But that time, most of you know the world nations have announced a form of lockdown and restrictions. So we will, to your point earlier during the in the news section, be doing a lot of online content consumption, and of course there'll be people delivering this content. And you and I, and many others, including our friend Richard Turb and Chris Ducker, many others, we've been talking to each other about this idea of how do we keep the excitement, how do we keep the experience a positive one when we are a year on pretty much from the announcement of the virus the, the global pandemic and people having to sit and watch and listen to countless online sessions and webinars and and you and I uh, I would say I wouldn't say we're concerned that should be strong but we have a desire for you know the for things to move on to become even better like a good bottle of uh, wine to your preference Roger it should improve with age so I was thinking about this, and sure enough, in my inbox, I had an invitation to join uh, a man that we mentioned in the previous uh, session of Two Geeks and a Martin podcast, Mark Bornstein, the VP uh, of Marketing and Webinerd of On24, do you remember? And, yeah. and Mark has got such a wonderful energy and so positive, and he makes me laugh all the time because, of course, the chap has been delivering countless uh, number of online sessions, and lots of things have happened to him that he can you know, regale with his, with his stories and so on. But the webinar that he delivered was five webinar rules to break in 2021. And I thought the timing was impeccable, bear in mind the conversation I have been having about how do we make it special. And what Mark was warning, I think organizers as much as deliverers of presentation, is you really need to make sure that you moved on with your thinking and you, move, you need to move away from the kind of accepted rules and accepted wisdom about how to do webinars. So the five, I'm going to um, kind of list them for you. And I'm going to welcome your reaction because I know that you're very active online as well. So rule or wisdom number one to ignore or break away from is all webinars must be given on the same day at the same time. And what he's saying is you've got two things. You end up in your, in your own little routine, which means that sometime you're not going to create a surprise for your audience. Or he was saying, beware of that report that you can find online that says Tuesday 1 p.m. is the best day because maybe it's not for you. Uh, more importantly, if everybody around the world goes on, online on a Tuesday 1 p.m., how do you differentiate yourself? So recommendation number one, it was um, don't just do that. Surprise yourself and the others. Ask your audience and just consider doing things, you know, uh, in addition to the regular schedule. Now, number two, 
rule or wisdom to really ignore a webinar is an online presentation and you had so we're going to put the link in for the audience Roger because you must watch and and experience the rant and rave about this idea of people think a webinar is presenting um, slides and we're saying is you know for for Mark a webinar is a cool virtual place to go and he was also showing examples where you know it's about the experience or about a wall which I know you've helped host and produce charity events uh, tester sessions uh, quizzes games um, kind of special open days and so on so you want to make it an experience and really when you think about designing the webinar the last thing you should do or the, is start with the the slide deck start with pen and paper and think of what you're going to do in the time you, you are with them the third rule to ignore is that a webinar is a live event. Now, On24 is an enterprise solution. They've been providing uh, webinar hosting services for many years, so they have data. And what is interesting is this, that one third of their audience always watch on replay. Which is a lot, mm. and what mm. it's saying uh, in particular is seeing a big, big growth in what it called on-demand hubs. So what it was saying is you could ultimately record those online uh, experiences in advance and publish them for them to be watched on replay. There is no requirement for you to go live and have an audience, although it is part, of course, of the formula. So mix it up. Rule number four to ignore: webinars can't be too long or they can't be too short. And here it says. Nonsense. He has countless examples of webinars lasting four minutes, like a test of sessions, like a coffee in the chat with um, you know, kind of someone that, that you, you you follow. He also tells us, according to the data from On24, that the average length of webinars has grown year after year. And indeed, you and I have been participants and host of virtual conferences that would last four to six hours. So uh, what he was saying is have fun with it, but make sure to mix it up. And final, final rule to break is the f as follows. You have to gate the webinar. In other words, lose the form. So what it was suggesting is in 2021, after a year where people have had to attend many webinars and within that the accepted formulas become a bit tired, be very careful about how complex your registration form is to begin with. Do you actually need a form? Because ultimately, if all you're doing with webinar is to uh, essentially capture someone's uh, contact details for them to be then bombarded with your sales message, you are so 20 2020, 2010, sorry, and you're not in 2020, 2021. So be very careful. The goal of the online session is to get to know the audience and ask them to take action afterwards, not just to capture their email address or telephone number. Five rules to break away from in 2021. Well, I agree with all of those. <laughs> should, should we move on to the next section? <laughs> I mean, seriously. All of that is just absolutely spot on. I mean, I do wonder, Pascal, whether we should just dump the word webinar. I mean, that immediately just conjures up what you say. It's an hour long. It's going to be a presentation and you'll probably get hard sell something at the end of it. And then you'll get bombarded afterwards with emails trying to get you to buy whatever it was at the end. So, yeah, it, it isn't a webinar, is it? It's an online event. It's an online program. It's an online experience. And I do like that idea that it could be an interview with 
one or two people chatting or it could be a panel debate or it could be a quiz or whatever it is but none of those are traditionally what people see as webinars and and I think that if I was running anything now even if I wanted to run what I would traditionally think of as a webinar I probably wouldn't use the word webinar I'd just call it an online discussion or an online event or come up with something different but yeah let yeah breaking the rules absolutely absolutely key and and i also agree with the you know half an hour is fine an hour and a half is fine no thank you very much roger for this you know i thought you might be in agreement uh, so again we're going to put the link uh, to the session that you can watch on demand uh, because it's thoroughly enjoyable and mark is uh, a true ambassador about actually being a great designer of the online experience but actually enjoying the process of being the host of those amazing sessions so monsieur edwards what have you got for us this week Okay, Pascal, again, it's sort of an extended news item, uh, but it, it's, a, it's a subject that I'm, I sort of drift in and out of interest in, and it's this whole issue of what is known as influencer marketing. Uh-huh. Now, you know, define influencer marketing. Well, some people would say an influencer is just a bikini model pictured on a tropical beach or something like that who has a million followers on Instagram. And that's possibly the cliched view of what an influencer is. I mean, arguably, we're influencers. Even though we might not have a million followers on Instagram, we have a certain number of people who watch this podcast. We have a certain number of people who listen to our own separate shows and our own separate podcasts. And you could argue that we were influencers within that smaller group of people. So I don't dispute the terminology of influencer. And, you know, um, what, what's the exercise guy whose name's gone totally out of Joe my head? Who, who, Joe Wicks, that's the one. Um, he's an influencer. He's a fitness influencer. Uh, so he certainly doesn't um, fit the, the sort of uh, cliche of the bikini model on a, on a tropical beach. But I do think that the public have this image that influencers, in inverted commas, commas, are the latter style. And this article I've spotted in Campaign Magazine by Zoe Crook just sort of dissects this whole thing a little bit more. So the head headline is, The Dubai Dilemma, Has Influencer Marketing Lost Its Sheen? And as you would expect, it does start off with the sort of the, the cliché look at the influencer, specifically people who have been on programmes like Love Island or the equivalents, pictured on beaches in Dubai, uh, modelling the latest clothes, modelling the latest uh, shoes, whatever it might be. Now, they're arguing that they're doing work. They're away in Dubai and they're paid to market the brands of shoes, the brands of clothes, whatever it might be. But there's a problem, isn't there, when the rest of us are effectively confined to the home and the rain is lashing against the side of the house outside or we're having to dig ourselves out of snowdrifts or it's incredibly cold. And then we see these pictures of people who say they're going to Dubai to do some work when we know that they're going to take a few photographs and then spend the rest of the time just being on holiday and drinking pina coladas and stuff like that. And this article is is basically saying it's the influencers themselves that's the people who are modeling the clothes or whatever it is, and also the companies that are flying them out there 
to do that, that are going to have to be very, very careful and they're going to have to start treading a very fine line because we're getting to that stage now where the sort of interest in seeing photographs like this and interest in um, associating and, and being engaged by brands like that is starting to get a little bit annoying. And some people are saying, do you know what? I'm sick of seeing these people lounging about in the sun Drink, eating and drinking where I, whilst I'm following the rules. And it, 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 that's really all the article does. And it, and it sort of goes through, you know, should, should, should the brands be more responsible and say these influencers should be photographed on hills in the Lake District in the UK? Although you could argue that even that sort of travel within doesn't fit within the rules. Or should they actually be picturing these people in their own homes wearing these clothes and these shoes and hats and, and whatever it might be to show a little bit of responsibility that they are actually obeying the lockdown rules as opposed to seemingly flaunt the rules and just fly off and have a so-called jolly in the sun and and it's really more saying that it we've got to be more transparent we've got to be we've got to be doing that but i think the, the 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 thing that really got me thinking on this pascal is that what does work actually mean so the lockdown rules say that you can travel for work as long as you have effectively exhausted the possibility of being able to work at home. Now, an influence would perhaps would argue, I have to go to Dubai and sit on a beach, and that's my work, so I should be allowed to travel. Does that also sort of <laughs> include all the pina coladas and all of that on top? I follow quite a lot of travel vloggers, um, and I, I, I've picked up quite a lot of tips on how to film and, and edit from these travel vloggers. And there are some, Pascal, who have seen the, the, the lockdown rules, and they've gone back home and they are trying to adapt their vlogging style to maybe driving around their home countries in in vans uh, or or just doing local uh, excursions into their home cities but there are others who are still traveling around the world seemingly completely uh, flaunting the rules not wearing masks quite happily traveling around but they're saying no 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 i'm a travel vlogger and this is my work and you could argue that it is if that's their sole source of income, then it is. And I just think this particular article just created all sorts of contradictory messages and images in my mind, which I haven't quite reconciled myself with yet. So I'd be really interested in, in your opinion on this. No, thanks very much. And uh, we, um, well, certainly I shared my view about the term influencer in a previous episode of Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast, and we may <laughs> link it. But for me, as a reminder, it sounds made up. It sounds really quite uh, strange things. It sounds like something that was invented internally within a, um, I would imagine, a marketing uh, kind of bubble, and then you just escaped. And then suddenly people are using it for, for themselves. But as I mentioned, you know, I, I doubt that people, those travelers, you know, when you look at the passport, I don't think they're right influencer uh, on the, as the occupation or the profession. You know, so either you work in PR, either you're a food critic or, or whatever it, it, it might be. And for me, what this article is telling us is, is a reminder that you, you are never communicating externally uh, out of context. You are currently communicating in the context of a global pandemic with um, families being hit 
by unemployment, sometimes by the loss of a loved one, and so on and so forth. And I think you were saying earlier about being responsible. And interestingly, for our international viewers and listeners, only a few days ago, if not last week, Roger, remember the um, the MP of the House of Parliament calling for more compassion and for more understanding in how those in position of authority from political class as well as corporate uh, address the, the public because you can't just market your brand and you can't just address the public as if nothing is happening whatsoever. And I get it, you know, you've got to hear the sales targets and you've got to find a way to keep some of your uh, your colleagues and teammates in employment but you cannot communicate as if nothing is happening and more importantly in the case of influencer marketing and the less maybe um, attractive side which is picked up by the media uh, again on British television there was one of those uh, individuals being interviewed by a, a morning show on, on, on national tv and unfortunately it was seen that they're very good at taking pictures but they're not very good at talking about their profession and about <laughs> explaining what they can do. So they're not even a very good ambassador about the, the occupation and the function. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, it means that as ever they're overshadowing those who are behaving more responsibly, as, as you've described. So for me, it's just a symptom, a sign of the times. You've got to be ever so careful about you know how you go about your, your marketing. You've got to be so careful about the, the labeling. I mean, for me, influencer marketing is meaningless. And now it's going to have so much baggage, negative you know, connotation, that very much like webinar a moment ago, uh, Roger, we're going to have to move on. And I think I, I wish for those who do it well to also adopt a, a different title and, and kind of label because I, I don't think it's, it's doing, uh, doing justice. But I, I'm just going to close on that because I'm like you I'm, I'm really torn and i'll give you another example just to close this conversation so only yesterday i was on linkedin and on my linkedin home feed i saw two posts you know almost one after the other one was an organization who essentially was saying we want a big contract and it's amazing and just below was a guy saying i've lost my job i'm unemployed for the first time can anyone help me and the juxtaposition of those two posts was really quite something because it was just an example, a vivid example of what we are living through. And I, I'm not saying that people should not actually let us know that they won a contract because, of course, we do need positive news. But I felt there was a manner and there was a form uh, uh, in which you can articulate it that, again, the way it was said it was as if you know they had no concept that there was a world falling apart around them. Uh, and I think you know you could certainly mention that you want a big contract and add to the fact that you're very aware that it's hard for everybody out there, but keep working because this could happen to you too. Do you know what I mean? So some element of compassion and some uh, element of empathy. Uh, I mean, needless to say, actually, the, the post about the chap saying, I'm out of work, anyone help, got more reaction and <laughs> yes. support than the previous one. So I'm like you. I do want to hear the good news. I do want to be able to be in a position to say, well done you. But I'd like the formulation of the content to be in line with the times we're going through. Absolutely. Let's change the word influencer and let's introduce a little bit of compassion. I think that's a good way to bring this section to an end. And of course, the majority of influencers that I seem to see are on platforms like Instagram and TikTok, and those are apps. So our next section of the show is coincidentally marketing, tech and apps. In this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table apps. 
and pieces of marketing tech, again, which have grabbed our attention. Some of it we might have bought, some of it we might want to buy, but something which we think you'll find of interest. So, Pascal, what have you got for us this week? So this week I've got two things that would help refresh your brand or help refresh your online presence. And this is born out of a conversation I have with a few of my clients today. So typically, I'm sure you'd agree, Roger, January is used to reset and you know plan ahead and, and do things such as um, you know looking for the next six months of the year and putting your content plans and so on. And of course, what we've learned is not to plan so far ahead and be a bit kinder to ourselves. The one thing that we've been looking at with my clients is refreshing the look and feel of their social media presence, you know, the banners, the profile pictures and so on. Difficult to do because um, people say, well, I don't have newer profile pictures, I don't have newer photography, what can I do? And I was reminded of a wonderful app by a friend uh, of the show and also another digital expert and champion, James Lane, who is the digital sector manager for NCFE himself, he's a trainer, mentor and speaker. And he posted about an app that I'd forgotten about called Profile Pick Maker, which allows you to, according to the headline, make awesome profile pictures from any photo. So this is how it works, Roger. You have your current LinkedIn profile picture, your current Facebook uh, LinkedIn, uh, sorry, Facebook profile picture or Twitter, and you feel like a refresh, but you don't have new photography. What you can do with Profile PicMaker is upload that photo and you can remove the background and add colors or add shapes and, and forms and so on. So that allows you to maybe see you through the next few months with something that looks a bit different, something that you know, would attract someone's attention. And I find also sometimes it just helps you know really make your yourself as an individual just pop a bit more because sometimes the background can be a little uh, busy, you know, depending where the picture's been taken. Uh, it works with AI. You can even select and code in your own brand colors so that can also work really well for a team you know kind of reset of your profile pictures but again uh, i put the link in the show notes but it's a great little tool where you upload your picture using ai the background is removed and you can re uh, change it to solid colors or dotted background or you know have some special effects and so on and it's just a little nice way to maybe you know make people pay attention to your profile again so that's number one. Number two, I've been talking a lot to my customers about audio branding. This idea of what is the sound, what is the um, jingle, if you prefer, Roger, that's going to signify this is your content, whether it's a podcast, whether it's your video intro and outro. How do you do that? And right now, again, it could be difficult to know what that could be or you want to experiment. And I was reminded by the good work from Mike and Isabella Russell, you know, from Music Radio Creative. They have actually a wonderful um, section of their website where they can offer you free jingles for your podcast and video intro and outro as a way to experiment and find your audio signature that you can then move on for the future. And indeed, if you like the work that Mike and Isabella do for you at Music Radio Creative, then you can take part in their chargeable service. Services, but I thought it was a wonderful service and a timely one. Bear in mind the conversation with my customers. Mike's got one of the best radio voices <laughs> in the world, hasn't he? He's got such a deep, sort of bassy voice. When I, when I record the pod, my own podcast, and for this the, the audio version of Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, I always put it through a filter on Adobe Audition, which is called. Um, uh, uh, 
blissful bass and it just makes us sound a little bit more boomy i guess but mm. mike's got that built into his vocal i know it's so fantastic <laughs> <laughs> so, so pascal I, i'm going to talk a little bit um on long similar lines from the last episode i'm still looking at lighting for my video and my uh my home studio here and for when i'm out and about with my video camera and one of the things i've come across this week is something and and and, and again i i it's like when you go into a supermarket and you're looking for a bottle of wine and sometimes it's the label that grabs your attention as opposed to whether it's a Zinfandel or a Merlot or whatever. It's actually the label. And and I was going through a whole series of um, lighting um, websites and I came across this one called Falcon Eyes. And I just thought that is just a fabulous name <laughs> for a piece of tech. So it's an RGB LED light, lots of three-letter acronyms going on there. But basically, it's a it's a smallish square light, probably about that size, a little bit bigger than a normal iPhone, maybe about the size of an iPhone Plus or a small iPad or the equivalent Android phone. But it has it packs a lot of power, and it's one of these these lights that can generate millions of different colors simply by mixing and matching between the different uh, lights within the uh, within the unit and it's actually really quite cheap as well you know you look at some of these uh, rgb lights you're talking hundreds of pounds uh, this one is is under 100 pounds and it looks really good so it, it this is one that's edging much closer to the top of the list for the light that's going to replace this rather pathetic green bulb that you can see sat behind me in the picture here now this second app is an and tech is another light and this is a little bit off the wall because we've already said you know we're in midwinter you said before we started recording that you'd just been out for a walk it was freezing cold last week we had six inches of snow here and it took my wife and I a couple of hours to dig the cars out in order to go to the, the supermarket. So we're really feeling the the cold and the wet. And of course, it's dark in the morning when you get up and then it's dark about four o'clock. So you feel as if you're not seeing the light. Now, when I was researching video lighting, RGB LED, I came across something which I haven't heard of for a while. And that is a sad lamp. Have you ever heard of a sad lamp? I think so, but I can't recall where and why. Yeah, now SAD, another three-letter acronym, and for somebody who does not like <laughs> jargon and complexity, I'm not doing a very good job with my three-letter acronyms today. SAD stands for Seasonal Affective Disorder. And effectively, it's people like us who live in countries where we get quite dark winters. We suffer from the lack of sunlight, and we can sometimes get vitamin D deficiencies as a result of it. And a lot of vitamin D we actually get from direct sunlight. Um, and these lamps, sad lamps, actually replicate the effect of sunlight so that i don't know exactly how they work but the light that they give out isn't the same you would get from a normal light bulb or from an led it's got some other properties within it now i'm not going to say if you put this thing on in front of your face for 15 minutes you'll go bright red and need to put sun cream on it's not that sort of thing but it does create the chemical uh reaction in your skin that helps to produce vitamin d and a lot of people absolutely swear by these sad lamps that if you spend 15 minutes with one on in the morning it 
really helps to pep you up and, and effectively blast away the winter blues. And coincidentally, I, I was with a friend the other day who was absolutely going on about one of these things as well. So in addition to finding a light for my studio, I'm also considering buying one of these sad lamps. I'll probably better buy it quickly because otherwise it'll be spring before we know it and then <laughs> yes. the sun will be coming. But if anybody has got one of these and, and, and swears by them, put a comment down below in the YouTube comments section or look us up on Twitter and tell us what you think of these sad lamps. The one I was looking at is called an Easy Sleep Sad Lamp, and I'll include the links to it in the show notes. Well, so long as you don't fall asleep whilst you're delivering a webinar, if it's <laughs> on. But uh, I think what, what, what is helpful with this uh, this little uh, kind of uh, reflection, Roger, is reminding us that not only do we need to obviously create that kind of content marketing studio to look after our audience well, but we need to look, be looking after ourselves too. Uh, so th thank you very much for that. And I'm sure that our viewers and listeners will can't wait to hear what the denouement, you know, what, what is the, the conclusion of your quest for, for the very special light and what your decision will be. So I do like that acronym, SAD, S-A-D. And a lot of people think that geeks are a bit sad, don't they, Pascal? But there's nothing sad about getting really excited about what happens in the past. So it's really time for us to deep dive back into time and think about this week in history. And in 1919, Hollywood Film Studios United Artists is founded by Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford and D.W. Griffith. In 1924, the Royal Greenwich Observatory begins broadcasting the hourly time signals known as the Greenwich Time Signal, or the BBC Pips. In 1931, banks go bust by the thousands following the losses experienced during the Wall Street crash of 1929. In 1959, Buddy Holly, Richie Valance and the big bopper J.P. Richardson die in a plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa, together with pilot Roger Peterson. Well, in 1966, the Soviet spacecraft Luna 9 becomes the first soft landing mission to the moon. Luna 9 survived three Earth days on the surface until the battery ran down. Sticking with the moon here, in 1971, Alan Shepard becomes the first man to hit a golf ball on the moon during a two-day moonwalk from Apollo 14. Well, in 1982, pioneering budget airline Laker Airways, founded by Sir Freddie Laker in 1966, collapses owing £270 million to banks and other creditors. And in 2004, Mark Zuckerberg launches the Facebook from his Harvard dormitory room. And as well, they say. <laughs> history is, was made on that day. Do you know, one of my favourite uh, historical music films is the film about... Richie Valance, mm. and that film was was called La Bamba. But of course, it, it also features Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper, and, and maybe that film is a, a, a candidate for the film marketing section of this this video. But I always thought that that was. I mean, it's obviously an incredibly sad thing when a group of talented individuals like that sadly die in an accident. But the film seemed to in, imply, and, and, and I think this was actual fact, that Richie Valance had almost got that precognition that something bad was going to happen, uh, and yet he still 
got on that plane mm. because he knew that they were flying to another gig the following day and he didn't want to let his fans down and, and unfortunately that that was the end of it but I, I always get a shiver down my spine when I see that film and indeed if I ever hear the song La Bamba mm. ba ba da ba La Bamba you know that one mm. uh, it, it almost makes me think about that unfortunate accident that ended his career do you know the this film with uh, a young lou diamond phillips if i'm not mistaken um i didn't know the story i didn't know much about actually about those u.s artists so i'm i'm taken by the storyline i'm taken by the characters and when you hear which i think is played so well in the movie where they hear the news via the radio and and it's his older brother that hears it first and runs to to the the family home where the mother is basically distraught and i remember thing being shocked because I, I didn't know that that happened to to those artists and you, you're right it's so t- tragic and and it's tricky now to be able to watch uh, la bamba when you you know the ending because it's so incredibly moving and and sticking with the airline air pl- airplane theme <laughs> It's also this whole issue of Laker Airways is quite fascinating. I remember being very young, and I'm talking about in the in the seventies now, going to Spain with my parents. And one year we did go with Laker. Right, it was on a BAC one eleven jet at the time, and and I remember that. Laker was one of the first airlines to introduce effectively a budget transatlantic right. uh, service and I'm and I'm fairly sure that initially they used DC-10 planes but they may have been one of the first airlines I probably should have checked this in advance I think they were one of the first airlines to introduce the original Airbus A300 aircraft now interestingly the uh, Freddie Laker used to work use the sub brand Skytrain mm. for the the transatlantic fleet and I remember having an argument with this adult who was going on about, oh, it's the uh, this is the um, uh, Laker Airbus. And I said, oh, no, 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 the aeroplane's called the Airbus, but the brand is called Skytrain. And this guy was just ha- not having any of this. <laughs> and, and in the end, I think I got told, you're a five-year-old, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. But there you go. Even when I was five, I was trying to differentiate between the different brands of aircraft and the different brands of airlines. And you know what's interesting, although the way the news item is reported today uh, comes across as a failure, we must, we must recognise its contribution to essentially the holiday market and the uh, um, you know destination market. What is interesting, the way I grew up, because we lived in France, in the southwest of France, we drove everywhere. We, we never really flew much. And um, my very first flight ever was probably when I was 18, 19. I flew from Bordeaux to Paris to go and see Prince uh, in concert during the uh, Batman tour of, of, all, of all things. But flying just wasn't something that we did much because I suppose, you know, we, we had land to access easily by car, whether it was all the way to Switzerland, to Spain or, or Portugal. Yeah, that's that, that's a that's a memory, isn't it? Do you know one of the things about these in the news things is not only does it bring back memories <laughs> of the actual news items themselves, but it also brings back all of those memories which we can think of associated with the actual time itself. No, no. And with that in mind, I would really, really welcome our viewers and listeners to send us their memories, their reactions to when we do anything on the podcast, particularly this week in history. But I must obviously uh, bring to your attention the very first item I read about United um, Artists over 100 years ago now. 
okay 1919 now this the the kind of the studios of sort exist still under the the brand of united artist digital studios but in essence the brand it still carries on after all that time yeah and and i guess it wasn't until i read the news item that i realized that united artists was effectively these four people effectively <laughs> uniting together to cre to create a studio you see that that, that we learn something every day we do it's, it's yes absolutely fascinating. and i still get a kick when you see the old-fashioned you know kind of um, logo appearing um you know that you're in for a treat but um talking of um you know th treat i have to confess that as someone that's lived in, in the uk for over 30 years will be 30 years to the day in april of this year I am very, very fond of the BBC Pips. Beep, beep, <laughs> beep, beep, beep. There's something Every quite morning. reassuring, isn't it, Roger? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, mo most days my, my alarm goes off 10 to 7, um, and what I do is I'll allow myself to listen to whatever, t whatever couple of songs are on the radio between 10 to 7 and 7 o'clock, and then I hear the Pips, I listen to the 7 o'clock news, and then I usually get up. And there we go. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. They they are just absolutely part of <laughs> our uh, our culture, and they are hardwired into our brain. Again, this is one of the best parts of the show: reminiscing about history and our part, our personal part in mm. history as well. Pascal, shall we move on and do some shout outs for our content creator friends? In this section of the show, we give shout-outs to our creator friends. Now, those creator friends may be in our immediate network. Sometimes they're a little bit outside of our immediate network, but we always guarantee that they will have produced something interesting. So, Pascal, who is your creator this week? So, this week, I want to give a shout-out and celebrate the work of Jeff Ram. Now, Jeff Ram is an international speaker and book author, perhaps best known for a book he wrote a couple of years ago, I would say two or three years ago, called Celebrity Service. But I want to actually talk about his latest book, Celebrity Service Superstars. Now, if you don't know Jeff Ram, let me just read out to you how he might introduce himself if you were to meet with him or actually have the pleasure of listening to one of his many presentations. I'm Jeff Ram, and I have a passion for incredible customer service. I would I'll go as far as saying, Roger, that Jeff has a superpower. He can see and observe things that would be missed by most in terms of customer service, good, bad, and ugly. And of course, he's going to tell you about excellent and incredible customer service from organization, small, medium, and large, who are doing something really special for their customers. His book that I mentioned a moment ago, Celebrity, um, Celebrity Service Superstar Story, is just a great, great read. Over 12 chapters full of anecdotes, photography they took himself, ideas and stories, is going to completely reshape and uh, help you rethink what it means to look after your customers. And I think it's important because, uh, as we mentioned today, we spend so much time online the risk of course is that we forget that it's not just about communicating Roger it's about getting people to enjoy a service to enjoy the experience or whatever you charge them for so I can't recommend the the book highly enough. It's uh, full of questions, checklists and challenges, as well as interviews and anecdotes. And you will hear firsthand from people working in the airline industry, in hotels, but also university, accountants, food and drink manufacturers and so on, about those clever 
yet simple powerful ideas that they've introduced to make their customers feel very special to make their customers feel like celebrities and that's kind of at the heart of it now jeff ram is also a complete movie fan there will be more than one star wars reference in his book in which he kind of you know tells you at the beginning and uh, some of the the way the chapters chapters are titled are also making reference to movies and so on and that kind of red carpet treatment for your customers so if you want to be entertained but also uh, if you want to almost you know recharge your views on your version of customer service for 2021 i can't recommend uh, a jeff ram and, and the services as speaker of course highly enough but also the book celebrity service superstars yeah i think one of the things about lockdown and, and the covid pandemic is that there's far too many brands are using the pandemic as an excuse to give poor service mm. whether it's that oh you know we, we've got a longer period of waiting time on the phone or whatever it is because of covid i think you know we've been at it now for nine months and i think that we should be sorting it out and, and customer service is just as important as the product that you're giving and, and, and whatever it is so yeah absolutely want to follow up and read this one pascal service uh, sort of um, weaves into the the content shout out I want to do for this week, the creator shout out for this week. Uh, and my creator is a lady called Hannah Jones. Now, I first met Hannah when she was working for a financial services company a few years back. Uh, but since then, um, her and her, uh, her partner have pivoted. There's that word again into a different into a different industry and. They are now owners of holiday accommodation. Now, I've been following a story on LinkedIn, and it's just the height of unfortunate coincidence that they'd made the decision to pivot into holiday accommodation. They'd bought some property. They've done it up. They'd started marketing it. They put together a website, put together a blog. And, of course, they started to fill up their booking book when the COVID pandemic hit. And, of course... Various lockdowns have meant that people can't travel, even though this is within the United Kingdom, and their businesses suffered as a result. But the great thing about Hannah is that she's not given up, and mm. her website is really just the archetypal example of how small business owners can use content marketing. Now, the, the, the article that I'm pointing to that Hannah's written is really just about how to have confidence to book your next break in the United Kingdom. And it's effectively just answering those questions like, should I be thinking about booking a break, a staycation, I think they call it, in the UK? Hopefully, the travel restrictions, even internationally, might still be around for a while. Hopefully, we should be able to travel within the UK this year. And, and other questions like deposits and insurance and all of this. It's the archetypal content, Pascal, answering the questions that customers have but for a specific industry and in this case accommodation and and it's beautifully simple nothing nothing revolutionary about it just beautifully simple nicely written concisely written some lovely photographs and yeah I've put the link in the show notes, probably take you five minutes to read it, but you might actually like the look of the property so much that you might think, wow, this might be a place that we could have a look at for the summer of 2021. So Hannah Jones and the link is in the show notes. Thank you very much, Roger. Well, Pascal, it is time for us to get on the road 
power up a very frightening, sexy-looking battle wagon and hit <laughs> the desert track. Shall we go into film marketing? Well, Pascal, back in 1979, we saw Mad Max, quite an exciting road movie, followed a couple of years later by Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Mel Gibson, of course, starring in those probably relatively low-budget films, but actually took the world by storm, if I remember rightly. And then in 1985, uh, a bit of a uh, budget increase for the third of the films, <laughs> Mad Max 3 Beyond the Thunderdome, with Tina Turner mm. wearing quite a lot of chainmail, if I remember rightly, and people bouncing around inside a dome. Three very good films, three very good films. And then... In 2015, along came the sequel we never knew we needed, and that is Mad Max Fury Road. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Can you remember this one? Oh, do you know, I reckon that in 2015, this was the movie I was most excited to see. I mean, I've been caught by, by the marketing, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, but I just felt excited about you know the, the almost the anticipation and going to the, to the movies um, and after that I just couldn't wait to own the blu-ray because I couldn't quite believe what I had just seen what my eyes and ears had been exposed to for the better part of two hours <laughs> yeah I mean it was just relentless wasn't it as soon as it started for the almost the entire duration of the film, there wasn't a moment, and I think I may have said this about Speed, which we reviewed a few episodes back, that's another film that felt a bit like this, but this one genuinely almost needed to have captions come up on the screen every 30 seconds saying, remember to breathe, or something like that, because I did find myself, you know, it was just so relentless and so exciting, and so in your face, special effects, jump cuts, editing, just absolutely incredible pushing you forward never letting you rest and you know a visual and audio audio spectacle of like no, no other and i'm sure that i read that it was voted by many people as one of the best action movies of the, that 10-year period, or at least of 2015. I'm not surprised at all. I think you're right. It was a spectacle. And also, it was outrageous. I mean, some of the cast and some of the vehicles, the way they were shaped, the design, the use of the color in that Namibian desert and um, desert, sorry, not desert, probably because we're approaching uh, <laughs> food time. But it's also, you know, I remember thinking you could pose the movie at any time and and frame this and put it on your wall because it was such, um, you know, visually so arresting, really, and in interesting. And what I liked about it as well is, to your point, it was so well filmed and so well edited that you could keep up with it because the, the action was relentless, but it was so well framed and so essentially kind to the audience despite the pace that it wasn't like some of those action movies sometimes, Roger, where the camera is shaking and they cut so rapidly that you, you just don't know what's happened, but you have a feeling that something has happened. You could literally watch and see plainly what they were trying to share with you and and the different characters and there were some very really horrible characters there was obviously some some much uh, nicer one and and also this sense of real dread of if this doesn't go well uh, this is not gonna you know be good for the, the characters that I'm supporting here 
Yeah, I mean, the editing part that you just mentioned there, I, I, I did a little bit of research into the film before we came on online. And one of the things, it, the, the editing is absolutely astonishing. The number of cuts between angles and between scenes per minute in this film is one of the highest ever in film history, apparently. But beyond that... I mean, the film was shot, as most films are, and you know more about the technicalities of this than I do, but the film was shot 24 frames per second. But they edited it because sometimes certain shots, they didn't think 24 frames mm. a second was actually... that was There was too many. So they would actually reduce the number of frames per second for some shots just to either... Sp- I'd the make it feel as if it was faster so that maybe there was a bit more motion blur or something like that but the, the editing was so pinpoint precise that you could almost say it was obsessive yeah i think they they worked at all level they worked on the on the color they worked on the costume they work on the, the scene setting the characters i mean what they wear the way they look i mean some of them are, have been defaced literally by special effects others look look all right but for me back to what you were saying this sequel that we never knew we needed i was happy with the uh, original man max trilogy in fact i own you know the three films and I, i've watched them regularly Interestingly, I remember in 1979, my dad went to see it at the movies without me. I was only 10 then, so you can understand that. I remember being quite upset because, of course, it was making the, the, the headline, Mad Max, you know, that kind of indie Australian film that uh, you had to be over the age of 16, which is unheard of in France. We didn't have the kind of uh, the strict regime that you have maybe in the UK with uh, classification. I think I probably saw Road Warrior and VHS. So the first time I went to the movies with my dad and my siblings was to see uh, Beyond the Thunderdome. So fond memories of Mad Max as a kind of um, post-apocalyptic and uh, techno-noir you know, uh, style. And then out of nowhere, but that makes sense, you know, kind of 30 years after the, Beyond the Thunderdome, we hear about Mad Max Fury Road. I'm like, okay, why not? First, we're a bit upset because Mel Gibson is not in it, but then we see the first visuals, and I don't know about you, but I got so excited. Yeah, and and you know, as you say, all those incredible cars and wagons and <laughs> tanks and what I don't even you can't even describe them as cars and wagons and tanks, can't vehicles, uh, incredible vehicles, but. What I hadn't realised, you, you said 30 years between Thunderdome and Fury Road, but they actually did start planning this in 1997. Oh, really? And I believe, yeah, and I believe that, you know, some of the vehicles that appeared in Fury Road were actually built as early as 2003. So this film really took a long time to put together. And maybe that's why it comes across as so incredibly detailed on screen, because they didn't just put this together in 18 months. You know, it was years and years and years in the writing, in the creation of the vehicles, in the creation of the script and, and, and all of that sort of thing. So yes, there might've been 25 years between the actual releases of the films, but there certainly wasn't tw- 25 years of inactivity in between. Isn't that incredible for George Miller, the um, the director, to to kind of stay on the project. And that's the life of a content creator. I'm sure that at our yeah. level, we have things that are quite not quite there yet and one day they'll come to life. Uh, I think for me, that that was also part of the excitement when I discovered through the, the press releases and so on that George Miller, the original director, was, going, was working on it. And of course, he'd put together a great crew around the, the production. Um, 
the I think the announcement once it was revealed as part of the teasers that the bad guy with the original bad guy of the first Mad Max. So you had also with the nostalgia. Of course, I would argue, Roger, that you can watch Mad Max Fury Road on its own without having seen the first three, and that's still a a well. I think you'd be blown away. Yeah, absolutely, and. Yeah, I think it is definitely a standard. I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure if I think back, I I think I saw Mad Max two mm. first. I, I I think I then went back after many years when I got a bit older, perhaps, and watched Mad Max the original, uh, and, and then Thunderdome. So yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. It's, it's a standalone movie, and it makes sense. And it, you don't need to know the back history. Uh, it, it, it's it's definitely one of those films where you you know it treats both audiences with the with the equal amount of respect that they deserve, and so so we obviously like the film. And, <laughs> Do we? Uh, Do you think we got a message? Uh, yeah, we obviously like the film, and and it's likely I might watch it again tonight or mm. tomorrow. But w- w- what about the marketing? Okay, well, you know, we've done the research. What we're going to do for our viewers and listeners is go through the chronology so we don't miss anything. Uh, but also, if we do have missed something, do get in touch and we make sure that we add that into future episodes. So, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, I think when the teasers went out, which was essentially just still photography, and they made the covers of movie magazines like Empire and Entertainment Weekly, I think in general people were not impressed because, again, nobody's asked for the sequel. And of course, we realized that it was Mel Gibson um, in the uh, the main role. It was Tom Hardy. Um, but then again, if you'd seen previous efforts from Tom Hardy, there shouldn't be a, a concern. But so I, th- uh, I think people just went a little mad uh, on social for all the wrong reasons uh, in, in June, yeah, two thousand fourteen. Yeah. I, I, I can I can understand that. But then there was the first trailer which they put out at uh, San Diego Comic Con, and people met, went mad again because <laughs> then they saw how oh my god, this is actually going to be pretty good. I mean, that was the summer 2014, which is um, interesting why they're going to do this year with the Comic-Con because it was cancelled last year. They tried to do it online. It didn't really work, so perhaps they've learned a lesson. But for, for fans, of course, it was San Diego. Then within days, it was on YouTube. And I watched it so many times thinking, what am I seeing here? Because even then you had already some of the, the, the actions with the car chase sequence. You had also, do you remember that scene where people are on those poles that are kind yes. of swinging back and forth up and down to try and capture some of the um, some of the ladies that uh, Man Max uh, and um, Charlize Theron is actually trying to protect? And I was thinking, what have I just seen here? And if this is just a trailer, I want to see this. Of course, we had to wait nearly a year for that. But yeah, that was that was good fun. And there was a lot of social media activity uh, inviting <laughs> fans to unlock exclusive content. Um, and, and of course, by doing that, they're creating more anticipation and more excitement about what ultimately is going to get released. Yeah, I mean, they did it that well. I think it would be a, a bit of a dated practice now in 2020, 2021. But this idea of uh, here's a still photography or a strange message. If you want to see what's behind it, like comment and share. Uh, I think it was of its time. And, and I think in a context of a film release i think it's absolutely fine to have that kind of gamification but then by then what um, really happened after that was um you know a few months later by spring 2015 we get the 
let's say the proper trailer, the one that reveals the storyline and also the release of the posters. And much to our surprise, Mad Max may be the title, the typography, but the main character is that of Charles Theron, um, known later on as we'll know as uh, Imperator Furiosa. And I thought it was such a clever move to put actually a lead character that was a, uh, a woman. Yeah, and, and there's quite a few women in the film, isn't she? Mm. I mean, uh, she effectively rescues a whole group of of wives of the baddie, I guess, and, 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 and spirits them all off into the desert. And that's what creates this gigantic vehicle chase that goes on for the, the majority of the film. Uh, but I, I, again, I think it, it, it's inclusive of of all age groups and, and all... And all, and all um, just everybody can can enjoy this film indeed and so you know when you get the, the blu-ray when you get look at the post and so on she, she is first and and max is is behind her because indeed yeah. the way the movie is summarized it's about her and her attempt to essentially escape from you know the the ruler and um, that um, she gets help from the drifter named max yeah yeah now what i hadn't realized pascal and, and of course the other things that they did was that there was a a load of artwork mm, put out. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the film had its world premiere May 2015, all the usual places, mm-hmm. uh, Cannes Film Festival, came out on Blu-ray. And I remember we bought the Blu-ray the day it came out. <laughs> but what I hadn't realised until I was doing some research for the film today was that in October 2016, they actually released a black and white version of the film. And the director has been since on record as saying that the black and white version in his mind is the definitive version. So I'm actually quite intrigued to, because it's such a colourful film anyway, and the special effects are amazing. You know, I, I just can't think of, of watching it in black and white, but I'll take his word that there must be obviously something special about the black and white version. Yeah, because I'll be honest with you, Roger, I thought originally that was a marketing ploy to get more money out of me, mm. the same mm. way uh, other movies have done that, you know, where you, you can now so usually they add the black and white version. But when mm-hmm. Logan came out, remember the Logan, the, the last um, yeah, yeah. Wolverine movie? Um, yeah. You could then get the black and chrome, it's called a black and white version. And, and other movies have done that. So I thought it was just a... Um, a ploy uh, and, I, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I will confess however roger i am very fond of black and white in terms of a movie but I f- but then to hear that actually george miller had wished for the movie to be released in black and white at on the big screen like you I was thinking oh my goodness and you'd have missed all that beauty beautiful landscape and, and the colors that would have been very very interesting indeed yeah, and th- there was some ma- viral marketing <laughs> stuff going on as well, wasn't there? Um, you know, um, I believe that in Toronto they had a dusty car wash where people were actually allowed to have their own vehicles given the Mad Max treatment. Now, I think that just involved having them covered in dirt yeah. and, and a few stencils. They didn't start trashing them and blowing them up and, and carving <laughs> them up into pieces. But uh, you can imagine that that must have created quite a lot of social media uh, photo opportunities. So so again, it's, it, it's yeah. getting people involved. I just these, love that these are thing. These are good times to market a film because you can be inventive like this because of the distribution of the content. Um, 
I, I must confess, I don't know where I've gone for this one because if there is one chore in life that I hate is washing cars. So <laughs> the idea of having my car covered in dust with just the bits that says Mad Max coming soon on, on the passenger doors and so on, then having to wash my car afterwards. Um, but then again, uh, perhaps over there it's fine. The one that they did, which to be expected, is whenever there was a, prim- a special premiere, they did try and bring um, props, you could call them, from the movie. So uh, one of uh, Max's uh, Mad Max's car was uh, in display in Sydney outside, obviously the main uh, theater there, and they had some of the war boys, you know, some of the uh, the baddies uh, stood, and people can take pictures with them and then put them on, on social media. So I think there was a lot of um, very simple concept, but that went viral. I think for me, the one that I'm, I'm I tend to pick up more and more now, Roger, is also YouTube and its power and its influence, really in promoting a film because what George Miller did very cleverly or maybe he was just um, he didn't get engaged in that conversation people kept, kept asking him is it a sequel or, or, or is it a reboot and he yes. never really answered I think he said something one day well, a bit of both I, I'm not sure so of course fans of the film young and old spent days and days and hours and hours on YouTube arguing whether or not it was a sequel and a reboot in a process actually probably promoting of course the original work from George Miller as well I guess when I think about it it could be either mm. but the actual reality is I don't care because it was just a bloody good movie um, a bloody good movie and and I believe that you know that the marketing of it continues to this day. In, in last year, Charlize Theron actually did a special socially distanced drive-in screening of the film wow. to raise to raise funds for her charity. You know the Charlize Theron uh, Africa Outreach Project. So again, five years down the line, they're still using the film and its visuals it's and, perfect uh, it's, it's, it's impeccable timing now if you think about it so that would have been in its own right a five-year anniversary and because mm. it, it was filmed in namibia and all the part of africa you know that would have been a wonderful time for her effort with the outreach project but that means that this year we're also seeing the 30th anniversary of the road warrior yeah because that, that yeah. was public um, issued in well released in in 1981 um, so I reckon this is a character that is going to come back either through re-releasing or through re-screening uh, and special events and so on. But for me, what what is interesting is this idea of patience. So to, to what you're describing is George Miller wanted to do something like Fury Road since 1997. And he's been storyboarding, he's been working, he's been talking about it and so on. And actually produced a, a result in terms of this film, 2015, that is simply outstanding. Absolutely. And I really don't think there's anything else that I can say <laughs> to, to actually top that, uh, that uh, ending there, Pascal. A superb movie, and I'm definitely going to be re-watching it yeah, soon. Yeah, likewise. E- e- even if I just go into the settings on the TV and turn it down and watch it in black and white, rather than actually going out and buying the black and white, even though I know they'll have tinkered with the visual to make the black and white version more than just turning the, mm. the colour off on your TV. But you know what I mean. Wow. Mm. Wow, another another amazing hour of just 
scintillating conversation about our favourite subjects. Pascal, an absolute pleasure once again to share this hour with you. Everybody who's been watching, everybody who's been listening, thank you so much for tuning into Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Please leave comments on the YouTube channel or on Twitter, wherever you consume your content. Just let us know what you think of the show. Give us feedback, give us tips, give us ideas. Until next time, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you.